1: Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are in Isaiah 50 through 57. Now,
0: one of the major themes that flows throughout this is is the idea of Jesus being married to the church, the faithful bride. We talked last time that there are a lot of connections between John's revelation and Isaiah, and that's kind of where we see that motif. In the book of Revelation, we see in chapter 12 the coming of this beautiful woman, clothed in the sun, standing on the moon with the stars on her head, and she's pregnant, and she's trying to give birth to the kingdom of God. That's the image that Jesus has a faithful bride, and that's the church when she's faithful to Christ. And it's not just... A brick-and-mortar church. It's Israel. It's all of us. It's all of those that follow Christ and are faithful to Him. Now, when the church, when we collectively apostatize and we walk away from our faithful husband, we are, in essence, the unfaithful wife. And the Scriptures kind of bluntly refer to us as the whore of all the earth. When we collectively walk away from Christ, we are the false church, Now, John's going to use that a lot, so let me show you John's imagery just to kind of set this stage. In Revelation chapter 12, you'll see the coming of the faithful bride, the woman clothed in the sun. And then in Revelation 17, we're introduced to what the Scriptures call the whore of all the earth, Babylon. This is the unfaithful. This is when Israel or a group of us walk away from Christ and cheat on our husband. So, John says in Revelation 17:1, I will show unto thee the judgments of the great whore that sitteth upon the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, we talked about that last week, about each one of them has a cup, that the faithful bride has a cup, and... The whore has a cup in her hand, and that's the intoxicated wines that try and destroy us and pull us off the path. So the rest of Revelation chapter 17 is a description of her. In verse 4, she's arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, and she has the golden cup in her hand. And then verse 5, on her forehead was written mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And what she wants in verse 6 is she wants to destroy the saints. Now, Nephi's version of this is similar. If you'll turn to 1 Nephi 14, he's going to give a similar description. Nephi says in verse 10, there are only two churches on earth. Behold, there are saved two churches. One is the church of the Lamb of God. There's the faithful bride. The other is the church of the devil. Whosoever belongeth not to the church of the Lamb belongeth to that great church which is the mother of abominations, and she is the whore of all the earth. Verse 11, she sits upon the many waters. She has dominion over all the earth among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. So those are the two women one a faithful bride who is faithful to her husband, and the two of them. Are nourishing us like father and mother. The other woman is the unfaithful woman who has committed fornication with the kings of the world. So anytime we are apostate, it's as if that woman is our mother, or collectively we are that mother. So we're actually going to start this week's come follow me in the last chapter. Just is the negative. We don't want to end on a negative, so we'll start on a negative and build positive. Chapter 57 is that description. Isaiah is kind of rebuking those who are apostate. He's rebuking the whore of all the earth and what she's done. So for example in verse 3, "O ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer" And the whore. So, those of you who will not follow Christ and be faithful to him, you are sons of the adulterer because you have left Christ. You've cheated on him. We pick that up in verse 8. Now, this is a little graphic. Bear with me. Behind the doors also and the posts, thou hast set up thy remembrance, for thou hast discovered thyself to another than me. And art gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. That's quite graphic that the whore is committing fornication with the world, the kings, and the glory of the world and the riches of the world. And because of that, Because we've left Christ, we've uncovered ourselves. We don't have the protection that he brings. Therefore, in verse 13, when thou criest, let thy companies come and deliver you. But the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. In other words, you've left the man who will protect you and save you and redeem you. And you went a-whoring with men that can't save you. When you cry and need help, they won't be able to save you. That's kind of that motif, is the faithful woman versus the unfaithful woman. Now, that idea we're going to pick up in the latter days. For example, the water of baptism is kind of seen as her womb, and we come out of her womb. We do that same thing in the temple. Notice on the temple, there's sun in the middle, stars on top, and moon underneath. That can't necessarily refer to celestial, terrestrial, and telestial because the order's wrong. It goes from bottom to top, moon, sun, stars. So I think it's drawing attention to this woman in Revelation chapter 13, who is clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, wearing stars on her head. So if you look at the woman from bottom to top, it goes moon, sun, stars. The temple is an embodiment of this faithful woman kind of going into her womb and going through her veil and coming into the presence of the Father. So there's a lot of beautiful images in the modern-day church that kind of uses that motif of the church is our mother and nurses us, and Jesus is our Father— you could also kind of turn that around and say Jesus kind of takes the mother-like figure and he gives birth to our salvation, and the church kind of takes a father-like figure with keys and authorities, and the church is the one that administers those keys and authority. So it's just kind of a beautiful image of parents taking
1: care of us here in mortality. I really like the juxtaposition between the two images of the woman and I'm with Bryce. I think 57 is kind of a negative message. And as Bryce and I were talking about this, we're like, are we going to end on 57? Because it's kind of like wah, wah. And Bryce and I are like, no, we're not going to end on 57. We're going to do 57 and put that on the shelf and end on a high note. Now, one way we can read Isaiah 57 is as a parody on the Babylonian temple rites. You see, what they did in Babylon was very similar to what they did in Israel. I happen to see it this way. I look at this as if we look at the setting and life of this second bit of Isaiah, so much of it is rooted in the temple. It's so foreign to us in Isaiah 57. Like we're so removed from this, but we think this could be a parody of what were called the temple rites of the Babylonians. Remember, Isaiah 40 to 66. Is the second bit of Isaiah. Everything before 40, we're worried about the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are coming. But from 40 to the end, if you remember Isaiah 40, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, your warfare is accomplished. In other words, you've paid for your sins, Judah, come back and build the temple. So some of this could be a pun where Isaiah is basically saying, you guys came back to build the temple, but you weren't really doing it right. So we read in verse three, where it says, draw near hither ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. Now, this verse can be read a couple of different ways, but the word for sorceress and the word for cloud or this cloud of glory can be written the, the same way. And so this could be a pun where Isaiah is punning on the people that are running the temple in what's called the second temple period. Not everybody sees it this way, but we're just going to look at a couple things. This is one scholar, her name is Margaret Barker, and she says this, speaking of the harlot ruling in Jerusalem, she says, she was the evil antitype of the virgin daughter of Zion, condemned in the 6th century. And the last section of Isaiah describes the temple as a harlot because it had been built with foreign money. Isaiah condemned the second temple, Barker says, because it was not the tabernacle. You see, the word for tabernacle is mishkan, And the word for bed is mishkab. That's verse 7. Upon a lofty and high mountain hast thou set up thy bed. What's the lofty and high mountain? The Mount Zion. What should be on the Mount Zion? The temple. But instead we have a pun on that word. We have the word mishkab, which is bed. It wasn't the tabernacle. It was the mishkab. The cloud of glory that signified the Lord's presence. The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. That's Exodus 16.10. It wasn't there, but instead the word in Hebrew for cloud was sorcerer, the same word used for sorcerer, and it's written the same way. So one way to read this is that Isaiah is describing the priests of the second temple, not as sons of the bright cloud of glory, but as sons of a sorceress. And then Marka Barker says this, she says, bitter wordplay like this was characteristic of prophetic and temple discourse. And so we read in verse seven, you set upon a high and lofty mountain, thy bed, even thither wentest up thou to offer sacrifice behind the doors also in the post thou hast set up thy remembrance. And then if you skip down to verse nine, you went to the king with ointment and did increase thy perfumes and thou didst send thy messengers far off and debase thyself even unto hell. And then in the middle of verse 10, it talks about there is no hope. And then if you go to verse 13, When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them all away. All is, and there's that word again from Ecclesiastes, Hebel. If you look at the end of the chapter, verse 21, there is no peace saith God to the wicked. But that image is kind of a harsh image that when you
0: go apostate, when you cheat on Christ, you are that whore. The prophet Hosea will actually be commanded to go out and marry a prostitute. As a symbol that Israel is apostatizing. Israel is leaving her faithful husband. So that's a strong image. Come back to the faithful husband. Come back to Christ and he will protect you and be with you and comfort you and strengthen you. Now, sometimes we cry out and say, well, where's his protection? Where is our father? Where is the husband of our mother? Where is the man who's supposed to be protecting us? You can imagine that the Babylonian captivity would cause many of them to cry out, where is that faithful husband? Where is the protection of our mother? Why have we been ransacked such? And so Isaiah chapter 50 kind of begins with, I didn't go away. I'm still here. And so using that motif, he says in verse one, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? And the answer is, I didn't go away. I didn't walk away. I'm a faithful husband. And unfortunately, you were the one that walked away. So he says, behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves. And for your transgressions is your mother put away. It wasn't Christ leaving the woman. It was the woman leaving Christ. And once you walk away from Christ, you walk away from that protective power, that protection that he's going to provide for us. And so he's kind of calling, come back because this is who I am. Look what he says in verse two, is my hand shortened at all? that it cannot redeem? Have I no power to deliver? At my rebuke, I dry up the sea and I make the rivers a wilderness. Verse 3, I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know, this is a beautiful phrase of the faithful husband that Christ is. I know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. But you've got to come back through your covenants. You've got to come back and make covenants with me, and then you can receive those blessings. Come
1: back, and I will speak a word in season to him that is weary. Now, in 2 Nephi, we have this discourse by Jacob, and it's 2 Nephi 6 to 2 Nephi 10. And then after that discourse, Nephi stands up and says, I'm going to plug in some of Isaiah's words that have meaning for me. And then he gives us Isaiah 2 through 14. But there's this interesting bit right there in the Book of Mormon where Nephi drops this. Go to 2 Nephi chapter 11. He says in verse 1, Jacob spake many more things to my people at that time. Now, Jacob in his sermon between 6 and 10 of 2 Nephi is going to quote Isaiah 50 and 51. So what I'm trying to do is present an idea that perhaps Isaiah 50 and 51 have a setting in life that we can see. And once we see it, we can read it differently. And so back to Nephi. Nephi says, Jacob spoke a bunch of things to my people that time. Nevertheless, only these things I've caused to be written for the things which I have written sufficeth me. And then Nephi says, I, Nephi, write more the words of Isaiah and then skip to the end of verse two, for he verily saw my redeemer, even as I have seen him and my brother Jacob also has seen him as I have seen him. Wherefore, I will send their words forth unto my children to prove unto them that my words are true. Wherefore, by the words of three, God has said, I will establish my word. So I think the words of three are going to be Jacob, Nephi, and Isaiah. And then Nephi tells you why he's putting this stuff in here, at least some of the reason why. If you look in verse four of chapter 11 of second Nephi, he says, "My soul delights in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ." And then at the end of the verse, that these things are the typifying of Him. In other words, the words of Isaiah typify Christ, but they also help us to liken His words and see how the words of Isaiah help us to understand our life and our circumstance. And then in verse five, Nephi says, "My soul delighteth in the covenants of the Lord." And then over and over again he says that it's to establish hope. The words of Isaiah are to give us hope. And I think if you were living at the time of the exiles returning back to Babylon, they probably felt some sadness. And so most scholars look at Isaiah 40 through 66 as that message. It's a message of hope. I think one way you can look at Isaiah is this big picture. Imagine you're teaching a group of young people and the subject of the lesson is like the law of chastity to a group of people in the room these young people that have never committed a violation of this, you want to continue and and say to them, no, stay faithful, stay true. And that's kind of Isaiah one through 40, like don't mess up. But then there may be listeners in that room that have had some problems. Isaiah 40 through 66 is this message of have hope. It's going to be okay. And that's that contraries, like proving the gospel contraries. And how do we teach the fullness of the gospel to a group that's varied? They have different circumstances. For example, Mike, if you jump to 54, he's saying that same
0: thing. Knowing that Babylon you know, will occur or did occur, knowing the tragedy of Babylon, he says, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. So he's kind of saying that same message there. Yes, there were some tough times because you disobeyed and needed to be helped and encouraged to keep the covenant, but I was with you the whole time. I'm still with you.
1: I'll always be with you. Yeah, I mean... So many times in Isaiah 40 through 66. So there's so many examples that things are going to be okay. And I really like how you drew that out in verse 1 of Isaiah 50. Like, where's your bill of divorcement? Now, if you were in Jacob's audience, I I know we're in Isaiah, but I just want to say the Book of Mormon is a great explainer of what's going on in Isaiah. So just pause for a second. If you were in Jacob's audience you are probably feeling pretty disenfranchised. You've been cut off from your land, and then you get here, and you're following prophetic direction, and then your entire group splits in half, and half of them want to kill you. And so there are these faithful saints that are following Nephi, and Jacob quotes Isaiah passages that probably were very relevant to them. And in essence, they're exiles, just like the exiles that come back out of Babylon are in this space of being frustrated, and so this is John Thompson. This is what he says. Looking at the themes of 2 Nephi 6-10 through that you can conclude, he says, that Jacob's speech was given in connection with a covenant renewal celebration that was most likely performed at the Israelite autumn festival required by the law of Moses. Now you've heard Bryce and I talk about this a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on with first temple at the festival. And in that vein, Thompson lays out the themes. He says the themes of the fall festival are the themes of Jacob's message, which coincide with Isaiah 50 through 51. We link this stuff in the show notes and geek out a lot more. So to, to be brief in speaking, these themes that he lays out include these things, judgment, remembrance, creation, garments, receiving the name of God, sacrifice, fasting, confession and repentance, the law, sacral kingship, and the humiliation and eventual enthronement of Yahweh. That is really the root of Isaiah 50 through 51. I believe Isaiah 50 through 51 is a message to the exiles returning and God saying things are going to be okay. Now, that's big picture. If you go a little bit deeper into Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11 are the third servant song. Now, the term servant song isn't like, you don't have to use that term. That term was given by a German scholar named Bernard Dumm, who lived from 1847 and 1928. He coined the phrase because that word in Hebrew, ebed, which is translated as slave or servant, is used in context of these songs. So this German scholar coined that term and it's kind of stuck ever since. And so if you hear anybody talk about the servant songs of Isaiah, there's four of them. The third one is right here in the 50th chapter. The other three are Isaiah 42, one through nine, 1 through six. And then what I think is the most important servant song of all four, that's Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, really the 53rd chapter. Now, if you remember when Bryce and I talked about the fall festival in connection to Psalms, there's all these Psalms that talk about the king going down into the depths or going into the pit of despair, dying and then coming back. That idea was used in many of the fall festivals of many of the cultures around Israel. They do this in Babylon. They had what was called the Akitu festival, which was where the king had to swear to keep the law. And he would be ritually slapped in the face and they would pull his beard in front of everybody until he submitted to God that he would be a good king. We see this in Egypt when the person who represented the king would be ritually slain and then come back. And so Isaiah's audience understands these ideas. That's kind of my take. If the exiles are reading this, Isaiah 50, they're coming out of that worldview in Babylon where they've seen the Akitu or the New Year festival over and over again repeated. So Isaiah 50, verse 6, fits right in line with their understanding of how the Babylonians saw their cosmic king. And Isaiah's communicating those ideas to his audience. And this is my take. I think the servant is Jesus. And I think the Christian authors, the people that wrote the gospels, saw Isaiah 50, and they were like, of course this is Jesus. Look in verse 5. The Lord God has opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. That is directly related to Matthew twenty six sixty seven. Then they did spit in his face and buffeted him and others smote him with the palms of their hands. I mean, Matthew sees Isaiah and he sees Jesus and to Matthew, the servant is Christ. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. I think one way of reading this is Isaiah knows what he knows. Now seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of this, I think we can understand
0: that harsh statement to Peter where Jesus says get thee behind me Satan. Now that was a that was a harsh rebuke for Jesus to say, but the idea here is I have set my face like a flint and I am going to Jerusalem to be killed, Peter. And Peter lovingly, who loves the savior says, "Oh don't say it's not so, Lord. We're going to find some other way. We're not going to let them kill you." And Jesus rebukes him by saying, get thee behind me, Satan. This is what I have to do, and I'm going to do it, and I won't let you or anyone else stop me. I have set my face like a flint, and I'm not going to let even people who love me get in the way and stop me. Now, the beautiful thing about these servant songs is we can see them as ourselves as well, that I'm the servant. And therefore, because Jesus set his face like a flint to get to Gethsemane and not deviate that, I'm going to set my face like flint to get to Christ. And if I have a friend who comes and says, hey, let's deviate, let's get off the path, that's when I kind of have the same attitude, no, get thee behind me, Satan. I will not deviate from my path to go straight to Christ. And so he kind of set that example. I think Matthew saw that he set that example that I am going to Jerusalem because this is why I'm here. This is my destiny. And I love that phrase. I have set my face like a
1: flint. I know that I shall not be ashamed. Excellent. J.H. Eaton wrote a book on this, a whole book on what's going on in these passages. And he's completely convinced that all these passages at the second bit of Isaiah really relate to that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these yearly celebrations where the king is ritually slain and comes back. And he makes this comment about these verses that are really difficult, right? Where the individual gives his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. And where they spit on him. And this is what Eaton says. Admittedly, there are traces that in some periods the worship may have seen Yahweh as held while his enemies affected him and caused him to die. But the great majority of the texts concentrate on his victory, his ascension to the throne, and they center on his throne in Mount Zion and in heaven. The dramatic counterfoil was provided, it seems, by lamentation of society's need for redemption from the pit, from the death state of drought and sin, and all the personal and national disorders which came when God was distant, silent, and displeased. I think what Eaton is saying is this. Yes, there's passages like Isaiah 50 verse 6. But the majority of these passages really do kind of center on hope. And so that's why, to me, th- this is just me. I read Isaiah 53, like this fourth servant song. It's such a big deal to me because I-, I can't not see Jesus. Like, I see Jesus all through this, and I love it. That's what I think the Old Testament really is lacking, some of those powerful statements. A lot of it, I think, is because the Bible is edited, but... I really love the fact that we do have this bit in the third servant song in Isaiah 50, and that we also have 53. The shift really does take place in the 51st chapter. If you go to chapter 51, look what it says. Verse nine, awake and put on thy strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in the ancient of days and the generations of old. Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Art thou not it which hath dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? This is who God is. He's split the sea and he's conquered it. Verse 11, therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their head and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I mean, that is the message of Isaiah, the second part of Isaiah especially, but we read this in the beginning chapters. How many times did Isaiah say a remnant shall return or the trees cut down, Isaiah chapter 11, but there's a shoot that's coming up and there's going to be a new tree. That is the message of Isaiah. So I think, big picture, you can use Isaiah to say, okay, we want to caution those that are about to sin, but if you have, all is not lost. Or even if it was someone else
0: treading you down because you were just innocent, and, and now you've been in infliction, it's that same thing. God will be victorious. I love how 51 begins. He says, look back to Abraham. Look to the rock from whence you were hewn look back to Abraham. Do you remember the Lord promised Abraham a son? And then how long did it take to get that son? He promised him a land, and then how long did it take to get that land? God will fulfill his promises to you, and he will be victorious. But sometimes it takes patience and faith on your part. So look to Abraham. Abraham received every blessing God offered, but it certainly didn't come in a timely manner according to Abraham's expectations, but it did come. So he's trying to say to the exiles who have been beaten up and lost their temple, those blessings are going to come, but you need to awake and arise and come back. I love if we put all these awakes together— Notice the common theme. In chapter 51, verse 9, awake, awake, put on thy strength. In verse 17, awake, awake, stand up, Jerusalem, thou which has drunk out of the cup of trembling. And then in chapter 52, verse 1, which we'll get to in a minute, but awake, awake, put on thy strength, Put on the beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. In other words, come up out of the dust. You've been drinking the cup of trembling because you left the faithful husband and went after false gods. Now, haven't you drunk from that cup enough? So put it down. Put down the cup and put on your beautiful garments. Put on your strength. Now, that image of putting on a garment has clear reference to the coats of skins that Adam and Eve were given in the Garden of Eden. Take off the fig leaves that you're hiding behind that can't cover you. And put on the coats of skins that God is offering you, the atonement of Jesus Christ. Put on that atonement. Cover yourself with it. It's the idea behind the Hebrew kafar that the atonement is a covering. Put on the covering of the atonement and let go of the cup of trembling that you've been drinking because you went a whoring Put on your beautiful garments. Come back to
1: Christ. Cover yourself with his atonement. You know, it's interesting, Bryce, in the first temple, the idea of awaking and putting on thy strength liturgically meant that the audience would stand and that they would basically agree to the covenant. We kind of see this going on in Mosiah 1 through 6, where King Benjamin's preaching, and there's a point in there where they basically say, No, we agree to the terms of the covenant. I also see this, like you talked about, with arising from the dust, this is a resurrection image where they're awaking and they're standing. And I really like this image in in the Catholic mass. There's a point in the Catholic mass where you stand up and acknowledge God and who he is and you receive what's called the Eucharist. And that's really a couple words in Greek, "eu," which is well or good and charis, which is grace or, or beauty, right? You receive the Eucharist, which is the bread, which is the good bread or the, what I like to call the Yahweh bread. Now, we liturgically in our sacrament, we're not doing a lot of standing up and sitting down, but we do take the bread. And I think we stand up spiritually in the sacrament, right, where we stand up and we acknowledge that we agree to the terms of the covenant. And so John Thompson really does explain this well in his paper where he says Isaiah 50 and 51 are given at the temple. So there's some liturgical things going on here. And when you're talking about drinking a cup in the first temple, they would eat and drink. And they would put on clothing, and it was representative of them coming into God's presence. And I love big picture. The message of 50 and 51 is, I haven't forgotten, you guys. I love how you drew out that image of verse 1 about the rock from whence you are hewn. That is also another way to look at this, too, is that's the Holy of Holies. And there are scholars that say this, that the Holy of Holies in the temple had a little hewn piece, A piece of the rock was hewn out so that the Ark could fit into the rock, into the Holy of Holies. So if that, I'm just saying, if there's that connection and we're hewn from that, that means we came from his presence. We came from that rock, that little cleft that was taken out of that rock, God's presence, and we are now returning liturgically to the rock. So I see in Isaiah 51, 1 as a beautiful temple image. And then I love verse 2. Abraham and Sarah, the masculine and the feminine version of divine parents. It's just really kind of cool. So I I love it. I think it's really awesome. And Mike, I think there's one more reference to the awake and put
0: on your garments. I think Isaiah and the Lord are revealing here that the woman is going to be most beautiful in the latter days prior to and during the millennium when her children are multiplied. And so the Babylonian captivity is a is a metaphor for the apostasy. And just like they were told to get out of the apostasy, come back, leave, don't touch it, be clean that bear the vessels of the Lord, which we'll get to in a minute. It's another message of come out of the apostasy and come rebuild Zion and the restoration. So this is now our day in which we're talking about put on your beautiful garments in our day and be Israel restored. Look, for example, at verse 3 of chapter 51. The Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, wherever they are, all over the world. He will comfort her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. And then in verse 11, which we read, the redeemed of the Lord shall return. That's a death motif that they're going to be resurrected. It's a Babylon rebuild Jerusalem motif, but it's also a restoration in the latter days. It's us. The redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. It's Israel coming back. I love the end of verse 16, where he says to Zion, thou art my people.
1: I have not forgotten, and I will be with you. Verse 14, the captive exile He's going to be loosed and he's not going to die in the pit. By the way, Bryce, Moroni loves Isaiah 51. Look at the end of the Book of Mormon. And by the way, I see this is so much of this is temple, but we have the words hissing forth in verse 28. Another word for hiss is whisper. And then he says, verse 31 Awake and arise from the dust. O Jerusalem, put on thy beautiful garments. What are we going to do in verse 31? Enlarge the borders and be no confounded, and then verse 32, we're perfected in Christ. Christ has made us perfected. At the end of verse 33, we become holy without spot, and then notice what he says in the last verse. I bid unto you all farewell. I soon go to rest in the paradise of God until my spirit and body shall again reunite, and I am brought forth triumphantly through the air to meet you before the bar of the great Jehovah. So where are we? We're at the throne of Yahweh, where Moroni is. And we've become holy, and we've come from the dust. And he says it again in verse 27. He says, you are going to see me at the bar of God. And so this is a liturgical coming in, first Israelite temple, right? We're coming in to God's presence. We're putting on the garments, and we're coming through the veil of the first temple into God's presence. And he says in verse 32, that we're perfected in him. In other words, we've put on Christ and now we are changed people. So I I love that as the message of the Book of Mormon. I think Moroni loves Isaiah 51. I think it has a lot of relevance and it really does, to me, give me hope. And so whether you're an exile that is coming back in the late 6th century BC or somebody who lives in 2022, we all have times when we feel like we've been forgotten. And I think this does, it really does give us hope
0: come home. Now in 52, we start that transition. We talked about this last week With this is the great exchange that Babylon conquered us and put Israel in the dust. And now Babylon is being put down and Israel is rising and ascending to the throne. It's that swap. The idea here is all throughout scripture that they who dig a pit for thee shall fall in the same themselves. So Babylon may have had a moment over you but you will be victorious and you will rise up and take their place and they will be put down in the dust. The same thing is true of many of the obstacles in our way towards salvation. Sin may have had a moment over us, but because of Christ, it can be put down into the dust and I can rise up over it. Affliction may have had a moment over me and I can put it down and I will rise up over it. Death may have had a victory over me, and I'm going to rise up over it. It's the great swap. Whatever pushed me down because Jesus is my king, because he's the faithful husband, because he's with me and I made covenants with him, whatever pushed me down, whatever bully pushed me down on the playground and made me cry, we're going to swap. I will rise up in my beautiful garments and sit on the throne, and the bully will be pushed down into the dust. So chapter 52 is where that switch starts to occur. And now we begin to see the victory of Christ and the victory of Zion because they've come back to Christ.
1: And notice verse 6. My people shall know my name. Knowing the name of God is a central teaching of John 17. When Jesus speaks to his father in that great intercessory prayer, he says over and over again to his father, father, the name that you had me give my followers, I've given it to them. The name anciently represented power. Knowing the name of God is a big deal. In fact, even today in Judaism, they don't say the name of God. They say Hashem, the name, because it's just so holy. And in this instance, Isaiah sees it, that the people of the Lord will know the name. And then you read verse seven, and this is an important verse. And this verse even pops up again in the contention between Abinadi and the priests of Noah. Verse seven says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Now, I love a a really... Simple interpretation of verse seven is that when you publish peace, how blessed are you? So when someone comes back from a war and they rush to the city and they say, Athens is free and everyone celebrates, right? And they lift up the messenger. His feet are beautiful. I love that interpretation. I think another interpretation could be the feet of the king have been anointed. And when the king places his feet on the footstool in the Holy of Holies, he represents God and Zion is being reigned by God. This is what Baker and Rick say. They say the king being on the throne with his feet securely planted on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies was a multifaceted affirmation of his royal status and his acceptability before God. It is for this reason that the priests of Noah challenged Debenadi with the question, what meaneth the words which are written? and which have been taught by our fathers, saying how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. You see, what the priests of Noah are challenging Abinadi with are a couple things. One of them is, Abinadi, you're not preaching peace. And the other That's one-
0: you being nice. You're saying yeah. really
1: mean things to us, mom. You, right. And the other one is, Noah is the king. Noah is the one that's publishing salvation and publishing peace. His message is smooth and it's peaceful. And Abinadi is making a direct challenge to King Noah's kingship. And in some cultures, the queen would anoint the feet, laying claim on him as her consort, but also it was a fertility image, meaning that the king would be fertile, that the land would be fertile. Now, if you think about what the New Testament authors do with the anointing of the feet of Jesus, they have a feminine figure anoint his feet as the rightful king. He is the one publishing peace and his feet are established. So I love verse seven, it's really awesome. I see this all drenched in temple imagery. And then you go to verse eight, where the watchman lift up the voice, And they sing, and they see together eye to eye. Now, Baker and Ricks make the point where they say that this has liturgical connotations, that they are in what's called a circle. That's how you see someone eye to eye. And we link this in the show notes with Hugh Nibley's paper on the early Christian prayer circle in ancient Christianity. It's a beautiful document. I highly encourage you to read it. And the early Christians did this. They would be in a circle and sing and or pray to invoke the blessings of God. The irony of
0: Abinadi and King Noah's people is that Abinadi was a watchman, and he was warning them of a danger that was right around the corner, and it was coming. And if they had seen eye to eye with Abinadi, they would have seen the danger. They would have recognized that he was warning them. They would have repented, and they would have been saved from that danger. And someday, when they were rescued from the danger, they would have brought forth songs of everlasting praise, and they would have praised the feet of Abinadi, even though at the moment it was harsh to hear. They would someday recognize how beautiful his feet were. I once had a beloved student who went to rehab as a sophomore in high school, and I asked him once about the story, and he told me that it was his mother that made him go to rehab. And he said, when I was in there, when I was struggling, I hated my mother. And then I said to him, and how about now? He was out of rehab. His life would come back to him. He was strong. He was happy. And I said, how about now? And he wept. And it moved me how much he wept. He said, I realize now that no one loved me as much as my mother. Even though her words were harsh at the time, I now acknowledge that there were no more beautiful feet upon Zion than hers. And I think that's the idea here is someday when we see eye to eye, even if a prophet has been harsh to us, when we see eye to eye and we see the danger that we avoided by listening to them or how much they cared in their harsh words, We too will break forth into joy and singing, and we will be grateful
1: and call their feet beautiful. As we approach holiness, we make covenants to improve, and we enter into more light. And eventually, verse 8, we see eye to eye and we sing. And then verse 10, the Lord makes his arm bare in the eyes of all the nations. Or another way to say this is the veil of unbelief is rent, and we see the hand of God. So, come out. Come out of Babylon.
0: Get out of the captive city. This is to the captive Israel. This is to apostate Israel during the apostasy. This is to anyone who allowed Babylon in any form to conquer them. He now says in verse 11, when he makes his arm bare, he says, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing, go you out from the midst of her, be clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. As you bring the things that Babylon stole from the temple back to the temple, bring them back worthily because the reality is you are one of them. You are one of the vessels that was stolen and you're bringing yourself back. So be clean that bear the vessels of the Lord and come back to Zion,
1: come back to Jerusalem, come back to Christ. So we go out of the midst of Babylon, we go to be clean. And then we have this promise in verse 12 that the Lord's going to be our rearward or behind us. And then it says, my servants shall deal prudently and he shall be exalted. And then it talks about the servant in verse 14, whose visage was marred more than any other man. I see that as Jesus. And then it says in verse 15 that he will sprinkle many nations. Now, Joseph changes that. Joseph Smith in the JST changes that to gather. Now, the word for sprinkle can be read a couple of different ways. The first bit of the Hebrew can be read, so shall he sprinkle many nations. It can also be read as startle. We give this to you in the show notes, but in the Greek, what's happening is he is Startling many nations. And so, as to the word gather, the typical Hebrew verb used in the Old Testament, they're not using that word asaf, but it seems to have no connection with the verb that is used in this verse. So, what I see here with this word for sprinkle, and like I said, in the Greek it says startle. What if it's all of those? What if, okay, many nations have been sprinkled or they've been scattered about? But in the Greek, the Greek translators that are reading this, they're taking that verb because it's troubling. There's a lot of translators that say, what do we do with this verse? So the Greek translator from the third century says, we're going to make this as he will amaze many nations, meaning the God of Israel will amaze the nations. What if that's also true? And what if that is the spirit of the gathering, that the gathering of Israel will amaze many nations? Because look what happens next in verse 15, the kings shall shut their mouths at him. Now, from the early days, from ancient times, the early temple, the Israelite festival expressed the idea that all other kings were subordinate to God. That's really the, the heart of Psalm 29, but so many messages in the Psalms talk about this expectation that the heavenly king was the greatest and the king of Israel was the embodiment of that heavenly king and all other kings would, quote, shut their mouths at him or subordinate themselves to him or not even speak. Now, as I read this, go with me to the book of third Nephi. When the heavenly King comes from heaven and third Nephi 11, this is what we're given. It came to pass that they understood and they cast their eyes up again towards heaven and behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven and he was clothed in a white robe and he came down and stood in the midst of them and the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon them. And they durst not open their mouths, even one to another, and wist not what it meant. I wonder if the author of 3 Nephi 11 is channeling Isaiah 52, and that Isaiah and the author of 3 Nephi 11 see something here, that the heavenly king descends from the earth and we can't even speak. It's so beautiful. And then you tie it into verse 14, where his visage was so marred more than any man. And then the son of God shows his marks to those people. And they see, oh my goodness, this really happened. I can't read Isaiah 52 and not see Jesus. And then just that little line, just a small little line in third Nephi that they didn't even know, they couldn't even speak. I think that was deliberate. I don't think there is any phrase or anything in the book of Mormon that isn't deliberate. I really believe that, that the book of Mormon is expanding our understanding of Isaiah.
0: I love that, Mike. That allows our eyes to focus specifically on this man, the Savior, the Redeemer, and what he did and what he is. And I think that's what Isaiah is now doing here, is he's making it clear, this is the Messiah. He's going to suffer so that he can save us. And that's Isaiah chapter 53.
1: This is really the heart. Yeah. Isaiah 53 really is the core of of this week's Come Follow This
0: really is where I would, if I were gathering my family and focused on one specific chapter, this
1: is the chapter. And by the way, this is what a Benedi is quoting in Mosiah 14. And if you remember in the Book of Mormon, Mosiah is a chiastic structure, and the apex or the center of Mosiah is Abinadi's powerful witness of Christ. And where does Abinadi get his inspiration? Isaiah. So this not only is this a big deal here, this is a big deal in the Book of Mormon. I think, Bryce, we can't say enough about this, how important right. this is.
0: Now, there's no question the Old Testament is filled with lordly lion prophecies, and Jesus will someday be the lordly lion. But the reason some of the Jews missed him in the New Testament is because they focused only on the lordly lion prophecies and missed the lowly lamb, that Jesus would be a lowly lamb who took our pains so that he could free them from us. That is now Isaiah 53. It's a beautiful look. Jesus will be the victorious king that all these other kings will shut their mouth at. Someday he will be a lordly lion, but he came as the lowly lamb. So we begin with, who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Now, I love the analogy here to Alma 32. Jesus is the seed I plant in my heart that grows into the tree of life. So yes, I think it's pointing to his childhood, his literal childhood. But I think if we read Isaiah with the lens of the whole gospel, and we know the imagery of planting a seed in our hearts that needs to be nourished, And if it's nourished, it will grow into a tree which will feed us for eternity. Now verse 2 takes on added significance, that if you believe his report, if you come to him, he will grow up before you or in you as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Do you have the faith to plant that seed in your heart and let it grow? And then there's going to be beauty. Then there's going to be food. There's also a reference to the works of God are not necessarily worldly flashy. They don't draw our attention like the world does. I love how John uses the imagery of Jesus as a constant star and Lucifer as a fallen star. Which one is more eye-catching? Which one appeals to our eyes more? It's the fallen star, not the constant star that I can use to guide my life. Jesus isn't worldly beautiful. He's not going to draw your attention like all the other voices are you need to find the beauty in him by letting him grow inside you. And if you do that, he will become a tree that will feed you for eternity. I love that connection between Alma 32 and Isaiah 53.
1: So Isaiah 53 says, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. I really like this in the sense of Jesus knows our pain. And I think a really good cross reference is Alma seven eleven and 12, where he knows what it's like. Verse four, because he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I think that also could be his followers. Imagine you were a follower of Jesus. You watched him raise the dead, and then you watched what Rome did to him. I'm sure that there was times when they thought, wow, he really is stricken and afflicted.
0: Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of his peace was upon him. I don't know that we fully digest that and what it means. Jesus became acquainted with every aspect of mortal life. The Book of Mormon refers to him as the infinite atoner. Jesus became acquainted with the human condition in its depth as well as its breadth. How many ways, in essence, did he break his arm? Breath-wise, every single possible way you can break your arm, he broke his arm. At least he experienced it in ways I don't fully understand. Every possible way. And how long did it last? What was the depth of that experience? It was an eternal depth. He knows every single one of those experiences. He knows addiction. He knows recovery. He knows heartbreak. He knows mental illnesses. He knows every single aspect of the human condition. Whether we acknowledge that he knew that or not, whether we were there supporting him or not, he did it on his own. So that, end of verse 5... With his stripes, we can be healed. He came to know the human condition so that he knows how to, A, overcome the human condition. B, comfort us in that human condition. C, judge us when we're going through those human conditions. And so many other aspects. He knows how to heal. He knows how to heal us collectively. He knows how to heal me individually. With the stripes that he experienced in coming to know every aspect of the human condition,
1: he knows how to save me. Yeah. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. If you look at Mark 14, 46 and 50, we read, and they laid their hands on him and took him, and they all forsook him and fled. So... We have all gone astray. But then in verse six, he says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The irony here is we all have at times turned our back on
0: him. Uh, Maybe it was because the world was shouting really loudly. Maybe it was because his journey was hard. For whatever reason, all of us at some point in our life have turned our back on him, but not once Has he ever turned his back on us? If we have experienced the wine press of life, it's because we needed to in order to become what he wants us to become. That is not evidence of him turning his back on us. It's evidence of him wanting us to become what we can. But I love that juxtaposition. We all looked the other way. We all have at some point turned our back on Christ Hopefully, we've repented and turned right
1: around, but he is always a faithful husband. 53 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. We read some of this in Luke 23. In Luke 23 8 through 10, there's this exchange between Herod and Jesus. And I shouldn't even use the word exchange because Herod is quizzing Jesus and Jesus just stands according to Luke and doesn't even respond. Now, I don't think that's the only time he was silent, but Luke tells us at that point, Jesus isn't going to even open his mouth. My take on verse seven is that perhaps when they took him and put him on the cross, he was like a lamb. He literally just was obedient. He didn't resist. Why? I think that's part of his prophetic mission. And I think Isaiah is channeling this and he sees this. And I think you and I need to understand that his offering
0: was willing. He was willing and and happy to do it to save us. He didn't go into Gethsemane begrudgingly. We don't owe him a debt. He never holds it over us and says, do you know what I went through for you? It was a willing offering. He willingly gave himself for us like a lamb doesn't fight it and just gives himself to the shearer. Jesus gave himself to the smiters so that he could save us. And I hold on to that so many times because sometimes I feel guilty for putting him through it. And I don't think that's the emotion he wants me to feel. I think he wants me to turn to gratitude because he did it willingly. He
1: was a lamb silent before the slaughter. Verse eight, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Now, there's a couple different ways to read this. In the Hebrew, it can be read as follows, at least the first bit. From prison and from judgment he was taken. And who will sing of his generation or who will tell the story? I like to read this as sing of his generation in the context of Isaiah, because over and over again, he's talking about the saints seeing eye to eye and singing. And it's, it's all over the place. I mean, look in 54.1, sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. I like 54.1 as a connection to that idea of singing. I really like that. I see this as liturgical. They're singing and they're praising the fact that God has overcome death. And I think we do this every Sunday. I would say this. I think that singing the hymn, especially the sacrament hymn, is such an important part of worship. For me personally, oftentimes that's a highlight of my week is singing that song. It connects me to the divine singing and declaring his generation. Now, in the English, it says, who will declare his generation? I like that as well. Now, the Greek reads a little bit different. In the third century, once again, when they translated the text, they translated it into Greek. We put the translation in the show notes for you. In his humiliation, his judgment was lifted up or his judgment was taken. And then in the Greek, it continues, who will tell the story of his genea? And that word literally means physical descent. Like, where does he come from? I know some translators take Isaiah 53, 8, and they change it from who shall declare his generation to who shall declare where he lives or his dwelling place. That's not what it's saying, at least in my opinion, but especially from the Greek, genea is... Who is going to declare how he was generated? And that is a fundamental message of the Christian authors, that Jesus is a son of God, a sacred miraculous event where he is literally a son of God. And so Isaiah is inviting us and asking us, will you declare this? Now, it doesn't say that, but it does say that. In other words, it's code speak. Welcome to Isaiah. He is speaking in code. And so this is Elder McConkie where he says this who shall declare his generation. This means, and then he's going to give his definition. This means who will give his Genesis, who will reveal his genealogy, who will give the source from whence he sprang, who will announce the divinity of the mortal Messiah. We might take another text. And this is one that Jesus himself spoke. He said, quote, whose son is he? This is the context. What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? And they say to him, the son of David. He said to them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's Matthew twenty-two forty-two through forty-four. Essentially, what Elder McConkie is saying is that question invites us to action. Are we going to declare that Jesus is the Son of God? And I think that is the fundamental question that abenadai is asking. abenadai is basically saying, I mean, he's castigating King Noah and his priests, but abenadai's message is that Jesus can redeem us from these things. And it's a powerful message. And so that's why I did the Greek. I think it's important to know that at least in the third century, it's clear that they're translating it that way. And I like that translation. I think that's an important message as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that we declare that Jesus is the son of God. Now, this next piece has
0: deep meaning to both Mike and I, where he sees his seed. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And then verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now, the father didn't take pleasure in his pain, Only in the fact that he could now save his children because of his son's sacrifice. So it says, it pleased the Father to prove him. Now, this line, he shall put him to grief. That's the agony Jesus is going to go through in Gethsemane. And then this phrase, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Now, I'm going to take the word when and define it as while, not after. Mike will tackle kind of after his sacrifice, he's going to go see his seed, but I'm going to tackle it this way. While he was suffering, while he was in agony in Gethsemane, what got him through it? What got Christ through his pain? Now let me read it again, and you'll find the answer. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, meaning while, he shall see his seed. In other words, it is my firm belief that you got Jesus through his agony. Seeing you, seeing what the atonement would do to you gave him the strength to endure it. The power to hold on. In verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Linking those two together, it is my firm belief that we got Jesus through his pain, that we're the ones he held on to when he was weak. Now, do you see that relationship? Because who gets us through our pain? Who gets us through our difficult endeavors? who's holding our hand in the darkness. He is. And why does he hold so tightly? Because we held his hand in his darkness. While he was suffering, I believe that what got him through was us. All his faithful followers, all the people who would benefit from his sacrifice, and I don't believe he saw a big picture of us. In his infinite way, I believe he saw each of us. He saw the effect of the atonement in my life and what it would do. And his soul was satisfied. And so he held on tight and finished it. Now, do you see the image of he and I holding hands? He and I clasping hands in covenant and gratitude. Do you see the embrace, that he embraces me and I embrace him? That's the relationship between each one of us and Christ. He loves us for helping him through his darkness,
1: and we love him for helping us through ours. You know, Elder Bateman really channels these ideas, Bryce, where he says, in the garden and on the cross, Jesus saw each one of us, and not only bore our sins, but also experienced our deepest feelings so that he would know how to comfort and strengthen us. So it's a beautiful statement. It coincides with what you're talking about. Abinadi says that his seed are the righteous, those who follow the prophets. That's in Mosiah 15. Now, I also see that he shall see his seed in connection with his three-day mission in the spirit world, that he covenanted with them and promised them that they could come and tell the story of his generation or sing the story of his generation and tell people the good news of the gospel. I think liturgically, it's also beautiful on another level, a whole nother level that the Holy of Holies sat on the gorn or the threshing floor. That's where we brought the seeds. And if you think about this, once again, it's the fall festival. We bring home the seeds and they're doing this in Israel. They're doing this in Egypt. They're doing this in other places to represent the seeds coming home. They would crush some seeds, grind them and make bread and eat them so that they would have that story in them. And so we tell the story of the redemptive Messiah every week in song, and we eat the bread in our future anticipation of coming home. And so this really is a coming home story, which is so beautiful because, you know, there's more stuff in 53 where he sees his seed and he pours his soul out unto death and he makes his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. And There's so much that's connected to the New Testament, but what's beautiful is in this homecoming story, we get to the 54th chapter and the resurrected Christ himself quotes this to the Nephites. And so I cannot read 54 and 53 and not see Jesus because Jesus is saying, guys, this is me. And so if I was there at the temple, when Jesus came, I would do Isaiah 54, 1. I would break forth into singing. I'd probably be bawling, too, looking at the resurrected I don't Lord. think we would sing very well. We've got tears streaming down our eyes. It's so cool, right? This chapter is, to me, Isaiah 54, quoted by Jesus. It is a message of hope. It's what he bought.
0: It's the effect of his atonement in terms of all of us, in terms of Israel, in terms of redeeming my people and bringing them home. This is the gathering at the second coming. This is also restoration after the apostasy. I was defeated, and yet I've been resurrected. I've come back. There's so many ways to read 54. I love to read it as, at the end of the world, when Jesus comes, and all those who have been saved by his atoning sacrifice are singing, I can just picture him looking out and I can just picture the woman. Okay, Here's the woman who looks at all of these people that were saved and she's just, where did these come from? And so Jesus says in verse one, sing, O barren, this is to the woman, sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. And I think there's a lot of ways to read that. You could just simply say, the expected number of children of the covenant coming back to the covenant would be a large gathering. But Jesus has pulled in so many others up and beyond the covenant. He has gathered all the earth. He has gathered everyone. And sometimes we in the church limit the Savior's goodness to those in the restoration. But what he's saying here is he is working in every corner of the world and he is bringing people to him in every corner of the world. And someday we're going to see all that work. And the number of children that this woman has will astound us. This is Israel come back. In fact, verse two, we got to make the place bigger. We got to throw in some extra walls. We got to enlarge the tent. We've got to strengthen, lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes because we're too big. We will break forth on the right hand and on the left. This is Jesus pulling in the saved, the net, all those that he's gathered, and it's going to be larger than we ever expected because of his goodness.
1: I really want to comment on verse 7 and 8. For a small moment, I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. I mean, that's the destruction of the temple. Continuing, it says, But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. Verse 8 to me is so beautiful. You have everlasting kindness. Once again, we're back to chesed. But then we have... I will have mercy on thee and that's the rechem remember that's the word for womb we have both of these words again used god loves israel and he has this hesed this everlasting kindness and the 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 word used for womb rechem this word that just denotes the love that a mother has for this newborn it's just a beautiful, beautiful passage. That's the God that we worship. And I love it because I see Jesus quoting it to these individuals that feel forsaken. Their, their cities have been destroyed. Look in verse 11. Oh, thou afflicted, tossed with tempest. Welcome to the Nephites. Like When Jesus is quoting this, they are those guys. But then the rest of verses 11, 12, 13, and 14 is this promise of salvation. I can't read it and not see the description in Revelation 21 of this beautiful city. You know, we read in Isaiah 54 it talks about windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles and all thy borders of pleasant stones. This is a cosmic vision of a beautiful place. And God says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it whole. And so for me, I really do see the Book of Mormon is extending that. The Nephites had a couple hundred years. They had a good run. But I think what Isaiah sees here is, no, there'll be a future day when one day everything that is broken will be fixed.
0: That's right. I love the reference in verse 9 to the waters of Noah. General Christianity and most biblical readers say that the rainbow is a sign that the Lord won't destroy the earth again. But that's not what we find in the restoration. We've been given an insight that makes this verse in Isaiah 54 significant. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. Now, that's our general reading, that the rainbow is a sign that the earth will not be flooded again. But if you go back and read this fascinating Joseph Smith translation edition in Genesis 9, it's not what we traditionally believe the rainbow stands for. So, let me read the JST. JST, Genesis nine twenty-one through 25. He said, and the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant which I made unto thy father Enoch, that when men should keep all my commandments, Zion should again come on the earth, the city of Enoch which I have caught up to myself. And this is mine everlasting covenant, that when thy posterity shall embrace the truth and look forward, And look upward, then shall Zion look downward, and all the heavens shall make with gladness, and the earth shall tremble with joy. And the general assembly of the church of the firstborn shall come down out of heaven and possess the earth and shall have place until the end come. And this is mine everlasting covenant, which I made with thy father Enoch. In other words, a reference to the sign of Noah, That what God promised to Noah is that the Zion of old will come back to meet the Zion of today, the Zion of the future. It's the two pots of the rainbow coming together. It's Enoch's Zion and our Zion. When we are ready, when we are prepared, when we have assembled as Christ's modern church, then will Zion join us. When we become a Zion people, Zion will come. There's a reference here in Isaiah to that promise. Let's make our stakes broad. Let's get ready because Zion is going to come down from above and meet the Zion down below.
1: That's good. I want to look at the big picture of Isaiah 55. What do we have here? Well, we have this invitation for wine, milk and bread, and this image of deshen or fatness, which means a lot of fertility. And to me, this is directly connected to Jacob's invitation in 2 Nephi 9, 50 through 51. And if you remember, 2 Nephi 9, 50 through 51 is right in the middle of that temple setting. And what do they do at the temple? They're eating. Notice what it says in 2 Nephi 9, 50, Come everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters, and he that hath no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So we have, big picture in Isaiah 55, we have them eating and drinking. Then we have this statement that the Lord's word will, quote, accomplish what I please and be bread to the eater. And then the participants in this chapter, verse 12, will, seeing as trees, and they will clap their hands. And then we have God exchanging symbols of the fall with tree symbols as signs. And the sign is that Israel will not be cut off. And it reads as follows, and it will be to Yahweh a name and a sign that is eternal and that will not be cut down. That's Isaiah 55, 13, this exchange with symbols of the fall of man with tree symbols as signs. And so instead of briars and thorns, we now see myrtle and fir trees. So big picture, what do I see in Isaiah 55? This is once again, we are leaving noxious thorns and briars and we're coming to the Holy of Holies, which... Early, early Israelite religion has the tree, and we have this eating and this drinking. And look in verse 3, your soul shall live. So I think big picture, we can read it that way.
0: But I think we can also go little picture and see a lot in the details of what 55 and 56 are trying to present. And that is who has been invited. We've kind of seen what you've been invited to do, but now let's focus on who has been invited. He starts by saying, let everyone that thirsteth come to the waters. And I love that Mike kind of portrayed, here's the waters. Here's what you can come to, but let's focus on the let everyone come. Anyone who wants to can come with no money. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter whether you're a biblical scholar. It doesn't matter how many years or generations you've been in the church. Everyone who wants to come can come and eat. You don't need to hold back. Everyone is welcome. Why do you go spend your money for something that won't satisfy? Come. Come to the feast. I am positive it was Isaiah 55 verse 1 that prompted Nephi in Second Nephi twenty-six thirty-five to write, he invited them all to come unto him and partake of his goodness. Notice the emphasis, I think, on all. He denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And he remembereth the heathen, And all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. This chapter is about he welcomes anyone who wants to come unto him. Now, I know we quote Isaiah fifty-five eight 8 and 9 a lot. My thoughts are not your thoughts, but we've got to read them in the context in which he's giving them. He is saying, I am not like other men. I don't hold the same prejudices. I don't hold a grudge inside me. Sometimes when someone hurts me, and then, oh, I forgive you, but I really don't. In my heart, I really don't like them.
1: Or you mostly do, but you're like, but I'm still mad at you. But I'm
0: still mad at them. And that's what human beings do. And sometimes we assume that
1: that's what God does. And Bryce, I think we do it to protect ourselves. I think we do. And I love how you're saying this because verse seven is the context of what you're talking about. So let's get there. Verse six, seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked
0: forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. He will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now notice the very next phrase, let the wicked come to God. For his thoughts are not our thoughts. Do you see that? Do you see what it's really trying to say in context? He is not prejudiced. He is doesn't hold a grudge. He wants you to come. He freely offers his salvation to everyone. And if you've been against him for a while, he just lays that down. I love this verse in Hosea chapter 11, where Ephraim really should be destroyed. Hosea 11, verse 9, Ephraim has done something horrible and really should be destroyed. And God says, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. Why? For I am God and not man. I don't think like that. Revenge is not in his nature. If you're worried about coming back to God because he might harbor some resentment towards you, he won't. You go read the parable of the prodigal son and you see the joy of that father when his son came home. That's what he's saying. Come home. I will not act like man and hold a grudge. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher, nobler than the earth, so are my ways higher, better than your ways. I
1: don't think like men think. He is God. By the way, that's a great application. And I think it's also an invitation. It is. Like, okay, what kind of dad am I going to be? What, what kind, kind of husband of dad am I going, I going to be when my children come home?
0: I love, if you kind of want to see this in the Book of Mormon, do you remember when the anti Nephi Lehis are being destroyed by those who weren't converted? And Ammon says, let's go back to the Nephites. Let's take you up to live with the Nephites. And the anti Nephi Lehis are terrified. The Nephites will hate us. We've been their enemies for so long. They won't welcome us. They won't want us to be with them. So Ammon goes in and says, should we do this? Should we let them in? And their response is exactly what God's trying to say here. They welcome them in with open arms. A very unnatural human reaction to someone who's been an enemy. And the Lord is saying, come back. Now, notice how all of that invitation feeds into chapter 56. The next chapter is going to talk about some of the most unlikely people to think that God would welcome them back, and they are being welcomed back. This is the spirit of the Book of Mormon. The story of the Book of Mormon is a story of misfits finding grace. We've got Alma the elder, we've got Alma the younger, we've got the sons of Mosiah, we've got Lamoni, we've got Lamoni's father, we've got Lamoni's brother. They're all misfits, right? And so we have chapter 56 of Isaiah, and I just want to illustrate to the eunuchs and the sons of strangers. Now, we're going to tread on this lightly, but Mike, tell us what's a eunuch,
1: So if I was a king and I had a a large harem, I would have eunuchs who were male servants who are incapable of producing offspring. And so that's what we have in verse three, where the eunuch says, I am a dry tree, but the Lord's going to give a different message, isn't he?
0: Yeah, because the eunuchs don't expect, I'm not going to have children. I'm not going to have a seed. I'm not a flourishing father. I'm just a servant. I'll never be a king. And the Lord says in verse three, neither let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Now listen to the invitation for thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I
1: will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Think of John 17, where Jesus says to his father, I have given them the name. That is so important. Even eunuchs. I gave the name to
0: eunuchs. And then verse 6, and the sons of strangers, Now, I think reading the New Testament, you get a glimpse as to what some people in the covenant felt about people outside the covenant, you know, about the Samaritans and what the Jews would do to avoid the Samaritans. So here is the son of a stranger. And also the sons of strangers that join themselves to the Lord and serve him to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. I love that both of them end with that, take hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring into my holy mount and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. And then this beautiful verse, wherever you are, if you've ever felt to be an outcast, Now, I have spent my career surrounded by wonderful people who occasionally feel
1: like they are second-class saints, that their life doesn't fit the mold. You know, Bryce, I think many of us in our lives have had times when we felt like we're the outsider. I'm
0: an outcast. I'm not like the norm. Will I ever be welcomed into his house? Verse 8, the Lord which gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, Yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. Not only does he go after the outcasts of Israel, he goes after the outcasts everywhere. I love that when he comes into Jericho, which is perhaps the lowest spot on earth, he comes into Jericho and he sees a man that everyone else has kind of ostracized and pushed outside of their inner circle, and he climbs a tree because he wants to see Jesus. Now, I call him Zacchaeus. If you call him Zacchaeus, potato, potato, but he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree and he says, make haste for today I must abide at thy house. He will always find the Zacchaeuses, the outcast, and bring them home. His atonement is for all of us, no matter how wayward, no matter how unusual, no matter how non-conforming our lives have been, we can find hope in Jesus and come home to Him. He is that Messiah. With His stripes, we can be healed. Of him, Mike and I stand as witnesses. Everything we do in our lives is because of the debt we feel we owe to him and cannot pay. And should we serve him a thousand lifetimes, we'll never
1: be able to pay back what his goodness has brought in our lives. And with that, we thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. We will join you next week when we finish out Isaiah. Make it a great week.